This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Well, thank you for having me this evening. It is truly an honor to be here, especially given the subject matter that's been entrusted to me, which I consider to be a special privilege to be able to speak to you about what our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf on Calvary. I'm always, I always look forward to coming down here. As Jake was saying, I regard all of you as my brothers and sisters in arms. And I, I just want you to know that before I speak to you this evening, what an incredible encouragement you are to me. I, whenever I visit Clearnote, I go home just fired up for the Lord and determined to continue to serve him and to continue to strive to preach the truth. So we thank God for you, brothers and sisters. Before I preach, will you please uh, pray with me and ask for God's help? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great love you have shown us in crushing your son in order to secure the forgiveness of our sins by satisfying the just requirement of your law that all sin be punished, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help me to communicate the truth of Christ's work to your people this evening. Help me to feed your sheep faithfully. Help me to not get in the way. Lord, if there are hardened hearts here, soften them through the work of your spirit and encourage all of us to cling to you, to flee to Christ with all of our hearts and to live for him for all that we're worth. Be with us now, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, as you see in your bulletin, I am discussing the evangelical doctrine of the atonement, specifically as it relates to the problem of God's holy wrath against sin. And I think that this topic is especially timely given the day and age in which we live when you may not recognize it, but the doctrine of the atonement is under constant attack in our current culture and our current, uh, the milieu going on in our society. And do you know why that is? Do you know why or how the doctrine of the atonement is under constant attack in our culture? Because we are living in a culture that insists that the wrath of God against sin is not a problem. Sin is excused. Sin is accepted. Sin is treated as being permissible and is celebrated as being good. And the moment you take sin and call it good, you are denying the necessity of the death of Christ, you see. You're saying that his shed blood is unneeded. I don't need it because I'm not in sin, you see. So we live in a day and age when our enemy, through our culture and those who are deceived, is constantly attacking the doctrine of the cross. And we have to beware, brothers and sisters, because we're part of that milieu. We're swept up in it, you see. And so it's, it would be very easy for us to begin cutting corners when it comes to proclaiming the work of Christ to the lost and to one another for that matter. It would be very easy for us to edit the gospel and to emphasize the love of God and to have very little, if anything at all, to say about the wrath of God because that makes us uncomfortable and it's unpleasant. And while it should make us uncomfortable, that's what drives us to Jesus in the first place, isn't it? So my aim this evening is just to reinforce something that we all already know, which is we need the shed blood of Christ. But we live in a day and age where we need to have that clarified for us. And we need to be reminded of it all the time. Because the moment you step outside of these doors, that truth is denied. In most places that you look. So when you're here with God's people, we need to take a stand. We need to be reminded of the truth. So I want to begin this evening by recounting to you an ex and a conversation I had with a young man from my church. And I think this, conver this conversation speaks to the gradual slide we have seen among evangelicals away from discussing the wrath of God, especially in regard to the work of Christ on the cross. We've seen a diminishing of the wrath of God. 
So this young man from my, uh, from my congregation back up north had spent his college years working with a national campus ministry, a national evangelical campus ministry. And he came home after spending spring break in Florida street witnessing with this campus ministry, going around and sharing the gospel, handing out tracts and so on and so forth with all the spring breakers down in Florida. And he came up to me one Lord's Day after service and said, Pastor Nate, I would really like to have lunch with you. I have some concerns I would like to address if you don't mind. And so the moment a pastor hears that, he's, his mind goes in a million different directions. So he says, of course, yes. I said, yeah, well, let's have lunch. So it's on you. Let's have lunch. So <laughs> beware of that. You ask a pastor out to lunch, that's automatic. You know that, right? I'm available tomorrow afternoon. But. So he sat down to lunch and he began to relate to me that as he was being trained by this campus ministry to share the gospel with lost spring breakers down in Florida, and as he was hearing his, his peers share the gospel, quote unquote, with all the spring breakers in Florida, he was concerned because he wasn't hearing any mention of the wrath of God as the cross was being proclaimed to all of these college-age souls down there who were there getting drunk and doing other things, demonstrating their need for Christ. There was no warning of judgment to come. There was no call to repentance. What did they hear instead? You know what they heard because you've heard it before. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. That's what they heard. No mention of wrath in there, though. And you see, the problem with that is the moment... You leave wrath out of the equation, you make nonsense of the cross. And we'll come to that here in a few moments. But the moment you leave wrath out of the picture when discussing the death of Christ, you make nonsense of the cross, really you turn it into a travesty. You turn it into a travesty. So I, was, I let this young man know how proud I was of him. And how thankful I was that God had blessed him with the discretion and discernment to know that that was faulty. And I actually warned him, and this may, I hope this doesn't come off strong to you, I warned him that actually what was being promoted down there wasn't the gospel, really. That what was being promoted there was a, a sort of false gospel. Really, Nate? Absolutely, saints. A false gospel. Any presentation of the gospel that does not relate the wrath of God being satisfied by Christ upon the cross is flirting with falsehood. And it's, we really need to wrap our heads around that. We really need to return to the evangelical doctrine of the atonement. And I was concerned after my discussion with that young man from my church because I think it is demonstrative of a growing trend among evangelicals to avoid the subject of God's holiness and wrath against sin simply because, well, for a number of reasons. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't sell well. It doesn't go to market very well. And it's regarded as being uncouth in our current cultural climate to warn someone that God is angry at them because of their sin and that he will pour his wrath out upon them unless they turn to Christ in faith. So my aim this morning, or this evening, sorry, I'm used to preaching in the morning. My aim this evening is to help articulate what the evangelical doctrine of the atonement is and how it takes the problem of God's wrath against sin head on. We need to understand that. You know, there are a number of problems facing the church today. There are a number of sins at work in our culture. We have to remember, though, that the number one problem that we are here to address as the people of Christ is God's wrath against sin. That trumps everything else. Now, of course, all the other sins our culture is engaging in at the moment fall under that umbrella, and we ought to address them as well. But we have to remember that the the number one problem facing mankind is God's wrath, his just wrath against the wickedness of mankind. So I have three major points that I'm going to address this evening. I'll give them to you now, and by God's grace, 
I'll, I'll make it through all three. Here's the first. There is no conflict between the love of God and the wrath of God. That's the first. There is no conflict between the love of God and the wrath of God. Here's the second point I'm going to be discussing. The wrath of God is essential to exalting the love of God and the death of Christ. The wrath of God is essential to exalting the love of God in the death of Christ. And third and finally, the wrath of God is essential to the effective proclamation of the gospel. The wrath of God is essential to the effective proclamation of the gospel. Those are the three points for this evening. So let's consider the first There is no conflict between the love of God and the wrath of God. To begin, we need to understand something. And I'm not going here because I like to be a wonk theologically or an egghead. I'm going here because we need to understand theologically what's at stake when we're discussing the atonement and the death of Christ. More specifically, we need to understand that the doctrine of the atonement is indelibly connected to our doctrine of God. You have to see that connection. Our doctrine or view of the atonement is indelibly connected to our view of God. What do I mean when I say that? Well, this is what I mean. The conclusions that we reach about the atonement and the wrath of God will determine how we view God in the end. And that view of God that we get through the atonement will either be true or false, leading to true religion or false religion, otherwise known as idolatry. Because how we view God is not up for grabs. We are not free to determine for ourselves what God is like and what his attributes are, are we? No, we're not. He is God, we are his creatures. He tells us who he is and we say amen. You cannot lie. I make this point. I make this point that there is no conflict between the love of God and the wrath of God and that there's an indelible connection between the atonement and the nature of God because I think many evangelicals today struggle with reconciling God's wrath with his love. They can't make sense of that in their minds. It doesn't compute. They don't understand how God being angry at sinners, how God pouring his wrath out upon sinners is consistent with his love for sinners. And since they believe, many evangelicals, I think, believe that the love of God is inconsistent with the wrath of God, what do they do? They emphasize the love of God while diminishing the wrath of God. Let's talk about his love. We won't discuss his wrath because those two things, don't, they don't match up. How can we say that he is both wrathful and loving? So what we need to understand is that there's no inconsistency between his wrath and his love or, more specifically, between his justice and his love. So here is where it's crucial that we have a robust doctrine of God that is grounded in Scripture rather than in our sentiments, rather than in our preferences and our feelings. So there are two things I want to say to you about the nature of God. And I won't stay here for very long because I'm supposed to be talking about the atonement. But we need to establish a few things about who God is, all right? First, God is perfectly just. We know that, right? All of his ways, that's throughout scripture. God is always just and he must judge sin. There's also some attributes of God we need to have in our minds as we think about the atonement, and that has to do do with the unity and simplicity of God. What is the unity and simplicity of God? Well, it simply means that God is not made out of parts, that he is irreducibly simple, and that all of his attributes, his love, his justice, everything he is, is in perfect harmony with all the other attributes God is never in conflict within himself. The persons of the Trinity are never in conflict within himself. 
within themselves. You understand that. And that way God is totally unlike us because we're often double-minded. God can never be double-minded. We are very double-minded. Do I want chocolate or vanilla? I don't know. But God is never double-minded. His attributes are not switches that he turns on and off. We have a tendency, I think, sometimes to look at God in that way. Well, now he's being loving and now he's being angry. Right? Off goes the love switch and on goes the anger switch. And a lot of people look at the Old Testament and say, he had the angry switch turned on there. But when the New Testament came, he turned on the love switch and turned the angry switch off. That is not how God's, God's attributes work. God is the same God today he was all those years ago when he told King Saul to go and wipe out all the Amalekites, even the infants. You understand that? We've got to understand that. What does this tell us if we understand how the attributes of God are always in harmony with one another? Well, it tells us this. It's a key point. Whenever the wrath of God is diminished, the love of God is diminished at the same time. That's what we need to see here. I hope I'm making that clear to you. Whenever the wrath of God is diminished, the love of God is diminished at the same time. Because of his unity and his simplicity, you can't emphasize one attribute of God to the neglect of the others. He is God, the same God, all the time. And he never changes. So this means, given the knowledge, given the facts, the truth, that God never changes, that his attributes are not switches that can be turned on and turned off, that means that we absolutely must treat the love of God and the wrath of God, we must not treat them as if they are somehow in opposition to one another. We can't speak of God's wrath as if somehow that is in disagreement with his love. His love and his justice always go together. Whenever God acts in wrath, he is, acting, he is acting in perfect accord with his loving kindness. Whenever God is being loving, he is acting in perfect consistency with his justice. We see this in Psalm 89 verse 14, which reads, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the love of God always go together. So in everything that God does, he is always perfectly just and perfectly loving without fail because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we read that in Hebrews 13 verse 8. And we know that his character never changes. We see that in James chapter 1 verse 17. His love is not somehow turned off or put on hold when he engages in judgment. That doesn't mean he's loving the people whom he is judging. It means that his, loving, that his, his wrath is not inconsistent or in conflict with his love. They are perfectly consistent with one another. And if we lose sight of that, saints, and if we attempt to emphasize the love of God over and against the justice of God and the wrath of God, understand that that's nothing less than an attempt to remake God to suit our own preferences in the end. You see, I'm not comfortable with God's wrath. The people I'm preaching to are not comfortable with God's wrath. The lost I'm attempting to reach out to and share the gospel with are not comfortable with God's wrath. I don't want to make them uncomfortable, so I'm going to emphasize the love of God. And don't hear me to be saying to you we shouldn't speak about the love of God. We absolutely must speak about the love of God demonstrated and Christ crucified. But in order for the lost to understand God's love, they must first understand his wrath. And so when we share the gospel with those who are perishing in their sins, we must give them both. We must give them exactly what was exhibited in the death of Christ. The wrath of God and the love of God being brought into perfect harmony through the death of our Lord. And we dare not begin to emphasize one attribute over another because as I said, that's an attempt to tweak God and to make him fit our mold that we're more comfortable with. 
That's dangerous. That's impermissible, actually. That brings us to my second point. That the wrath of God is essential to exalting the love of God in the death of Christ. Now you heard what I said earlier, that what the young man from my church told me that he was saying or was taught to say to all the spring breakers down in Florida as he's presenting the gospel. What was it? God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. But here's the question we have to ask. And it's a very important one. Why was it loving for God to crucify his son? Why was that an act of love on God's part toward us? How was he loving us by crushing his son and laying our iniquities upon him as he was suffering there? And let's be clear about this. It was the father who crushed the son. We see this in Isaiah chapter 53. It was the father who crushed the son and put him to grief and laid our iniquities on him. We see that in Isaiah 53.10. So as we're telling people that, as we're saying it to one another, as we're saying it to our children, as we're saying it to our unbelieving neighbors, God loves you. God sent his son as an atonement for the sins of all who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be ready to explain to them why it was loving for God to do so. And what I'm telling you is this, that apart from the wrath of God and a robust understanding of the wrath of God, we cannot make sense of how the love of God is displayed in the death of Christ. All we're telling people in essence is that God demonstrated his love by killing his son. It doesn't tell us why that was a loving act for him to do on behalf of those who trust in Christ. So I want to point you to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, which beautifully makes the connection between the wrath of God and the love of God and the death of Christ. 1 John 4, 10. What does John write to us there? This is what John says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, as you read that verse, if you've opened to it, and as you heard me just read it to you, you might be wondering, hey, Nate, where's the wrath? Where's the mention of God's justice? John's only talking about love. Where's the wrath in 1 John 4.10? Well, wrath is the centerpiece of this verse, together with the love of God. It is present, we see wrath present in John's thinking, in the word propitiation. Notice that John hangs everything on that word, propitiation. He, he really does. Without it, without propitiation, the love of God and the death of Christ is ver- veritably emptied of meaning according to what John is telling us here. What, how do we know what love is? Well, God first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do we know that God loves us? Because he sent Christ as a propitiation. That's what proves the love of God. Christ is our propitiation. So if we're going to understand why the wrath of God is essential to exalting the love of God in the death of Christ, we have to understand this word propitiation and what it means. And here's what propitiation means. It's it's not that complicated really. Many of you probably already know. If you don't, that's all right. Propitiation simply means to placate, to appease, or to satisfy. That's what it means to propitiate something or someone. You've satisfied them. You've placated them. you've, You've appeased them. And it's with this word, I think we can, and the use of this word, and the neglect of this word, propitiation, that we can really begin to see how the notion of God's wrath has been diminished among evangelicals. Do you know why? Because there are so many theologians out there who would describe themselves as evangelicals who are not at all comfortable with this word propitiation. Matter of fact, depending on the Bible version you're using, it may have something besides propitiation. The RSV, I believe it is, has expiation. 
in place of propitiation. And you're thinking, well, Nate, so what? What's the big deal? It is a big deal. You see, expiation carries none of the connotation that propitiation does. Slow down, Nate. Okay. Expiation simply refers to the effect that the blood of Christ has upon sinners. His blood cleanses us from our sin, expiates our sin, takes it away. Amen. We're not denying expiation, but it's incomplete. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't cut it. Because when Christ died upon the cross, he was not merely expiating our sins. He was doing far more than that. And if we're going to understand the love of God that was demonstrated in the death of Christ, then we've got to realize the fullness of the Father's provision in the death of his Son. Now, why do you think some Bible translations cut out propitiation and put expiation in there instead? Because we have a a grocery list of scholarly reasons for doing so, right? Because Nate is dumb and doesn't know better. No. Do you know why? Because God loves everybody. God is not angry at sinners, everyone. He just wants to take our sins away. God does not demand that his justice be satisfied. That wouldn't be loving. So therefore to say that God requires propitiation, satisfaction of his justice, that's inconsistent with his love. We can't be inconsistent with the love of God. Therefore, don't use the word propitiation, just use the word expiation. Jesus didn't have to placate God. God's not like that. That's why you find that word changed in some Bible translations. So pick up a Bible translation that uses the word propitiation, KJV, NASB, or ESV. But that's why propitiation was changed to expiation. Do you see the discomfort with the wrath of God? We're beginning to toy now with the word itself. We're changing the language of Scripture to fit our comfort level. We don't like the notion of God being angry at sinners. He doesn't need to be propitiated. So that, of course, I hope, sounds familiar to the point I just made a few moments ago about the growing trend among evangelicals to diminish the wrath of God and also our inability, apparently, or our discomfort with reconciling the wrath of God with the justice of God. So this evening, I want to briefly give you four passages of Scripture to justify for you why propitiation is absolutely the word we must use in describing what Christ accomplished on the cross rather than just expiation. And again, let me clarify the difference between the two. Propitiation, if we say Christ provided propitiation upon the cross, what we mean is is that he satisfied God's justice, right? He took our punishment that we deserve upon himself in our place because that's what God's justice requires, that sin be punished. He cannot merely acquit sin by divine fiat. So let's look at several Bible verses that support what I'm saying to you, that we ought to say Christ provided a propitiation for us, not merely expiation. The first passage is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. We know this passage, many of us do. In verse 23, what does Paul tell us? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is common to all of us. We're all depraved. We're all sons and daughters of Adam. We're all conceived in sin, as David wrote in Psalm 51. Then what do we read in verse 25? Well, that depends on your Bible version. My Bible version says that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. So we see that. Verse 23, an affirmation, we're all sinners. And in verse 25, the assertion that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. And in verse 26, Romans 3.26 is crucial to understanding the, the atonement, saints. What does Paul say in Romans 3.26 through the Spirit? Or what does the Spirit say through Paul? So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
and Jesus. That is key. Do you know why that's key? Because in Romans 3.26, what Paul is asserting, what Paul is teaching us, is that it was necessary for Christ to satisfy the just demand of God's law so that God could take sinners like you or me, declare us to be justified because we've received that as a gift through Christ, that him declaring us to be justified required first that our sin be punished. Otherwise, if God took Nate Harlan, for example, and all the sin I've committed, and he said, Nate, I'm loving, you have sinned against me, you've blasphemed me, you've broken my law, you've been immoral, you've done all the things my word says, you, anyone who does them will not inherit my kingdom, you've done those things, yet I'm going to acquit you of them. I forgive you because I love you. I'm simply going to overlook them. God can't do that. Do you understand why? It would violate his justice. It would violate his justice. So God cannot merely look at a man like me, a sinner like me, and say, Nate, because I am loving, I overlook your sin. His justice must be satisfied. That's what Romans 3.26 is teaching us. So that God might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So that he can declare us to be righteous through Christ without violating his own justice. Without violating his own perfect character. It's right there. Next passage, Romans 5, 9. This is what Paul writes. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. What was Jesus saving us from? The wrath of God. Paul says it right here in Romans 5.9. Undeniably, what we see from Romans 5.9 is that being justified entails being saved from the wrath of God by the blood of Christ. So why did Christ die? Why did he shed his blood? Why did he go to the cross? To save his people from his father's just wrath against them. Two more verses. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the question To whom was Christ paying a a ransom? Who is he paying to? Do you know in the early church, there was an old theory, an old uh, understanding of the atonement that was called the fishhook theory. We what we call it today. And the idea was is that Jesus was somehow, in giving himself upon the cross, he was tricking Satan into surrendering mankind to God. That Jesus was giving himself to Satan and in exchange, Satan would turn us over to God. So the, the reason it's called the fishhook theory is because Christ's humanity was the, was the bait but his divinity was the hook, you see. So once the exchange was made and he had Jesus in his grips, in his grip, well, surprise, surprise, Jesus is God and you can't hold on to him, devil. So in the er very early church, there was a a belief that it was Satan to whom Christ was paying a ransom. But of course we understand that does not, that can't be supported at all from Scripture. So how was Christ paying a ransom when he gave himself upon the cross? He was paying a ransom by satisfying the justice of God on our behalf. That's to whom the ransom was being paid. His father's justice for our sake. Paul reinforces this in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14, which to me is one of the most glorious passages We're told there exactly what Jesus accomplished for his people. Listen to what Paul says. Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Could anything be clearer? That's what Christ did. He satisfied the justice of God. And finally, Isaiah chapter 53 Verses 5 through 6. In verse 5 we read from the prophet Isaiah that the chastisement or the punishment 
that brings us peace was upon Christ. He was being punished on the cross. And we're going to say more about that in a little bit. But we really need to understand that, that idea, that truth, that Christ was being punished upon the cross. And in verse 6, we see why he was being punished. Because our iniquities have been laid on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. So clearly, based even on this passage from Isaiah 53, Christ endured the wrath of God against our sin as our substitute. So this brings me back to the question I asked at the outset. How does propitiation exalt the love of God in the death of Christ? Well, it exalts the love of God in the death of Christ because it reveals to us the terrible price that God paid in order to satisfy his wrath on our behalf. And I, do, I use that word terrible very intentionally. It was a terrible price, a terribly high price that God paid in order to justify us. If we diminish the wrath of God, we diminish the death of Christ. We diminish what he suffered on our behalf when he died. And if we diminish his death, if we diminish his suffering, then we diminish the Father's provision for us in the death of Christ. As I said earlier, he did not merely take away our sins. He suffered the wrath of God against us in our place. And you know, that makes the atonement incredibly personal, and it should. When we understand that it was the punishment against our sins that Christ suffered. You know what it tells us? You know why it makes, us, makes the atonement personal? Because it reminds me, it declares to me, that I contributed to the suffering of Christ by my sin. You see that? My sin caused Christ's pain that he took willingly upon himself. We need to see that. It's so easy for us to say, well, Jesus died for our sins, and to keep that abstract and merely a statement of faith. It's crucial that we realize that, no, the sin I just committed earlier this morning or yesterday in traffic, that contributed to the suffering of Christ. I deserve death for this. I deserve to be forsaken by God because of that sin I committed. But Christ endured it in my place. I preached a few weeks ago on our Lord's suffering in Gethsemane. And I think that Gethsemane gives us an incredible picture a very bittersweet picture of the suffering that Christ was going to endure. Have you ever wondered that? Why was our Lord so nervous, so afraid of going to the cross? The Gospels tell us that he continually went back to the Father while he was in the garden, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't ask once. He asked multiple times. Do you know why? Because Jesus was afraid. Can we say that? Yes, because he's fully human. He was afraid of what he was about to endure. Not only the physical suffering, but even more so the spiritual agony he was going to endure when the wrath of his father was poured out upon him. Jesus knew, our Lord knew, that there was a cup of wrath that all sinners would be required to drink from. We see this declared to us in Psalm 75, verses 7 through 8. You ever wonder what cup is he referring to? He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, if you want to know what cup he was referring to, look to Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8. Here's what we read there. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Because we deserve it. Oh, there it is. There's the point of contention. Because in our fallen pride, we want to say, no, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to drink that foaming cup of wrath, well mixed down to the dregs. I'm not that bad. Yes, we are. 
Romans 3, what does Paul say about us? What does scripture declare to us? We've all become worthless, each and every one of us. We've all turned away from God. No one seeks after God. We do deserve to drink that foaming cup of wrath to the dregs. Let me ask you something right now. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that? You've got to have your pride shattered by that recognition. Your salvation hinges upon it. You have to be shattered by that. I deserve hell. I deserve wrath. If you don't realize that, then the cross will mean nothing to you. The shed blood of Christ will be like dishwater to you if you don't see your guilt. So we know there's a cup of wrath. And listen to what our Lord says in Matthew 26, 38 through 39. He's speaking to his disciples. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And the cup he was referring to was that foaming cup of wrath. And what happened while Christ was on the cross is he took all the wrath that was stored up against the sin of his people and he drained it to the dregs. He satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him. What you've got to recognize about this, brothers and sisters, is that when our Lord went to the cross, he went willingly. He tells us that. I, w- I lay my life down of my own accord. He wasn't forced to go. He could have been delivered if he had asked the Father, but he chose, he chose to take our guilt upon himself. He chose to take our sins upon himself. That adds quite a bit more to the picture of Christ's death than saying he merely cleanses us from our sins. Does it not? To say that he took my punishment and my place? Do you know how we should respond to that? Hallelujah! What a savior! We just sang it before I came up here. Hallelujah, what a savior! That knowledge should make us hate our sin. When we are reminded of what our salvation cost Christ, when we are reminded of what our sin, the suffering it caused him, when he gave himself for his people. Does it cause you to hate your sin? This is what you need to be saying to unbelievers. I know it's hard. I'm going to talk about that here as my final point. I know it's hard to go out into our world today and talk about the wrath of God and talk about the sinners deserving the wrath of God. As I said a few Sundays ago, people look at you as if you've grown a third arm out of your forehead. Because that idea of the judgment of God seems so old-fashioned. And we're also worried about looking and coming off like that pastor in the movie Pollyanna. Some of you have seen it. Some of you maybe have not, so this isn't making any sense to you. Some of you are smiling, so you know what I'm talking about. He gets up there and he's blustering and carrying on about the wrath of God. And he's all fire and brimstone. And we don't want to sound fire and brimstone. So let's not talk about the wrath of God. But in order for us to make any sense of all, any sense at all of the gospel, we have to tell people what happened there. We have to tell people what Christ endured upon the cross. We have to exhort them to despair of their own self-righteousness, to fear the wrath of God and to flee to Christ to find forgiveness. Let me talk briefly on my final point. The wrath of God is essential to the effective proclamation of the gospel. The effective proclamation of the gospel. As I was writing this, I deliberated over what word to use there. I almost wanted to say that the wrath of God is essential to the faithful proclamation of the gospel. That's certainly true. But I changed it to effective 
for a very particular, for a particular reason. And the reason I changed it to effective is because I want us all to understand that unless our presentation of the gospel, unless our discussion of Christ crucified includes the wrath of God, then our preaching, our witnessing is going to be rendered ineffective, utterly ineffective. And I am not a prophet, so I can't say this with any level of of certainty, but I believe that one of the reasons, if not the reason why the church in the United States seems to be so ineffective in her witness is because we have gotten away from a clear proclamation of the gospel. We have given in to the pressure being exerted upon us by our popular culture to soften the wrath of God and to emphasize his love. And when we do that, our preaching becomes ineffective. Let me try to explain that to you. In our sin, fallen man has an inherent aversion to the holiness and wrath of God. And I know that's not a shocking statement to those of us who are here. But we have a wicked propensity to diminish God's wrath and emphasize his mercy instead. And that means this, that if we wrote the gospel ourselves, it would sound a lot different from what we hear the apostles saying. It's what we often do here nowadays. It was the same thing that was going on in Judah in Jeremiah's day. False prophets were a problem in Jeremiah's day. And when the false prophets came along, do you know what they said to the people of Judah? What did they say to them? They said this, in chapter 23, verse 17. They continually say to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. What were they doing? They were avoiding judgment. They were avoiding wrath. And then you read on to see what Jeremiah said. And Jeremiah warned about wrath. He said, wrath is coming. You need to repent. Saints, what I just said to you, that the message of the false prophets in Jeremiah's day, this is exactly what our culture wants to hear. And here's the thing. It would be very easy for us to tell them what they want to hear. That would make life a lot more comfortable for us, wouldn't it? To not have to discuss the wrath of God, to not have to call sinners to repentance. But apart from the justice and wrath of God, the cross ceases to make any sense. Do you know why? Because sinners don't see their need for Christ if you're not conveying to them and warning them about the wrath of God. They don't see their need for it. Their guilt is not validated, you see. And they need to have that guilt validated. They live in a culture that tells them, and there are sinners who are walking around out there knowing that they're sinners, plagued with guilt, and our culture keeps telling them, you're okay the way you are. You're okay the way you are. Don't worry about it. And the problem is, when they come into the church, they start hearing the same thing. You're okay the way you are. God loves you just the way you are. Don't worry about it. And by the way, believe in Jesus. And what would your response be? Why? Why should I believe in Jesus? I'm okay the way I am. God loves me so much, right? He sent Jesus to die for his people for some reason. Because he loves us. Right? When when people are coming into the church and they're meeting the people of God, they need to be hearing something radically different from what the world is telling them. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that we need to be unashamed of the gospel. Yes, we will look like fools to those in our culture. But remember, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. The foolishness of God in Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of salvation. So yes, we'll look foolish. People will look at you like you have a third arm coming out of your head. And you know what the biggest accusation you will have leveled against you as you declare Christ crucified to those around you? That you're hateful. That you are hateful. That you are intolerant. That you are unkind. And if you walk away from this talk with anything this evening, 
I want you to walk away with the understanding that that's a lie. You are not being hateful and unloving when you warn sinners of the wrath of God. When you invite them to flee to Christ to find forgiveness. Because he provided perfect satisfaction of God's wrath and justice against sin. For all who will believe in him. That's not hateful. That is love. And saints, we can't allow ourselves to be pressured or cajoled by our culture into saying anything different than that. If we cave to that pressure, we're going to continue to be ineffective in our witness. The gospel is going to continue to be lost in translation. and become sugar-coated, candy-coated. Rather than liberating sinners from their captivity to sin and to guilt. So as you go out from here, as you go back to your lives and go out of these doors, go proclaiming Christ crucified. This is encouraging to me. I, you know, we ask the question, what should we do in this day and age when so much wickedness is, is rising up in our culture? What, what should we do? What strategies should we have? Well, those are all important questions. But this gives us a singular focus, doesn't it? What do we need to do? We need to go out and proclaim Christ crucified. We need to call sinners to repentance. We need to warn them against the coming wrath of God and declare to them that Christ has satisfied his wrath for all who would trust in him. That's where we need to begin. That keeps it simple for us. So as you go out from here, brothers and sisters, go and declare Christ crucified. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the love that you have shown us in crushing your son for our sake upon the cross. We thank you, Lord, that he took our guilt upon himself. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him. Lord, we are so tempted in this day and age to back off from the gospel, to back away from what was accomplished upon Calvary, to diminish your wrath. Lord, give us the courage we need and the love we need in order to faithfully proclaim Christ crucified. Help us to be unashamed of the gospel, Lord, so that we may faithfully proclaim it to our unbelieving neighbors. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others. But do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.